0: Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week Stephen Roblin, who is a scholar of U.S. public opinion towards the U.S.- War and Conflict. He is committed to using his research to support activists, NGOs, and policymakers working to mitigate and prevent the human costs of war. His research examines the effect of civilian harm by the U.S. military and anti-war messaging on U.S. public opinion. He is currently a Ph.D. candidate in political science at Cornell University. Prior to attending Cornell, he earned his master's at the University of Maryland School of Public Policy in 2009 and B.A. at Morgan State University in 2006. In 2009-2020, he will be a pre-doctoral fellow at the Institute for Security and Conflict Studies at the Elliott School of International Affairs, George Washington University. Stephen Roblin, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you for having me. So, fill us in on on some of your findings.
1: Well, before I discuss the findings, if you don't mind, I'd like to just quickly uh describe what my research is responding to sure just to paint the uh to provide the context so as you know we face a dire contemporary crisis which unfortunately is getting worse under the trump administration and that crisis i'm referring to is the killing and maiming of foreign civilians by the united states government and this is done largely in the name of fighting terrorism And as we know, after 9-11, there has been a dramatic escalation of uh, U.S. military activity abroad, as well as CIA. And as we speak, the U.S. is carrying out bombing missions in countries throughout the Middle East, uh, northern and eastern Africa, and South Asia. And the human cost of all these activities have, uh, have been devastating, to say the least. Indeed. Now, the, the, the Cost of War project uh, is one of several projects that tracks the human consequences of U.S. military activity. And according to the, them, uh, half a million deaths in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Pakistan alone have occurred, while over 20 million people
0: have been displaced.
1: So I should stress that these Figures are conservative and certainly incomplete.
0: I, I would I would register my personal opinion disgustingly conservative. I haven't seen a serious scientific study uh, in Iraq that doesn't find the the deaths much higher than that.
1: Right. Some of them are reporting over a million, as you know. Indeed. Yes, and I I just want to emphasize that you know it's important. To get the figures right, obviously, because there's a lot of efforts by the U.S. government to propagandize and paint a picture that the war casualties have been very low. But of course, all the independent um, observers that I've been that I've uh, looked at have agreed that the military is woefully wrong. So that's important to point out. But one death is too many, in my mind. Indeed, But if you, re- if you read the news, you know that the, the crisis is getting worse under the Trump administration. And I think it's important to just recall that Trump, as a candidate, endorsed indiscriminate bombing, intentionally targeting family members of ISIS, and those are civilians, so in- embraced intentionally killing civilians. And as president, his administration has revised the Obama-era rules of engagement, and the new rules have reduced the precautions the military must take before carrying out lethal operations in its war against ISIS. So basically what the Trump administration has done is institutionalized greater tolerance for civilian death. And unsurprisingly, um, bombings have been increasing, and the civilian casualties that bombings inevitably cause have been increasing as well. So that's the... A um, quick and very incomplete glimpse into the problem that my research is responding to, and then it obviously raises the question: what can be done about it? And I firmly believe that pressure needs to come from below, from society. So I look to peace activists like yourself and others as a source of some remedies, and I hope that my research can um, can contribute in, in some small way to um, the important efforts and noble efforts that activists have been undertaking for years and years and years. And one of the things that the the anti-war movement and peace activists in the United States have been trying to do is influence public opinion and mobilize more people against violence abroad. So my ultimate goal is to use my research to help activists, organizations, as well as policymakers, you know, who are committed to peace, try to improve their public messaging to help them in their in their efforts. And I'm working on a few projects that I think could uh could help in that regard.
0: Well I actually think they can. Uh, can we get to to the specifics of what some of those are?
1: Sure, sure. Um so my dissertation um my dissertation examines the question does the American public care about the foreign civilian victims of US wars? And the conventional wisdom in international relations, that's the field that, I, that I'm that i studying, um, is that the American public is essentially indifferent to the civilian victims. Instead, the public only cares about, quote, winning wars and preventing harm to U.S. soldiers. And there is certainly some truth to this. Um, scholars have established that public support for war wanes as the military fails to achieve its It's um, set objectives and U.S. set soldier casualties increase. But the more broad claim that the American public is indifferent to civilian harm is is being challenged. And recent research among international relations scholars has explored whether the public is responsive to international humanitarian law, which governs the conduct of war. And they found that some of the, the norms or provisions that are intended to limit wartime civilian harm do actually influence public support for war. So they've looked at, you know, proportionality, for example, that the public is responsive to the number of civilian casualties, and then also precaution whether or not combatants take enough measures in advance to prevent civilian harm. But interestingly, no study has looked at the intent behind civilian harm, which is interesting, because it's so crucial to to international humanitarian law. And this body of law distinguishes between deliberate harm to civilian, foreseeable but unintentional harm to civilians, which is anticipated, but it's not the direct um, purpose of the military operation and then accidental. So I explore whether or not the public is sensitive to this intent distinction using survey experiments, which I'm happy to, to talk about. And uh, and I find that they actually do. So public support in the studies that I've carried out, um, participants in the study, they did decrease their support for uh, killing civilians in counterterrorism scenarios as the intent shifted from accidental to foreseeable to intentional. And here's the key thing. that The public support or the respondent support, rather, decreased even when the airstrikes were described as effective in weakening the terrorist organization. So it challenges this conventional wisdom that the public only cares about, you know, soldiers and then, quote, winning.
0: Yeah, I think that's a very important point, uh that people will care about harm to civilians even in the face of being told it's it's achieving some other good. Uh but I, I would have I would have said of course the US public cares about harm to civilians on those rare occasions when it's told about it. Uh but the the, the over overwhelming problem is, is ignorance, censorship, lack of information uh, on that front. Is 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 it not?
1: I would agree with you. So I I mean my find and the findings of my research support this that there is an underlying well uh underlying moral concern that the public has. Um but I don't think they're given enough information about what the US is actually doing and they're not sufficiently informed about the, essentially the moral stakes.
0: Do you think – I don't know if if you've been able to research this or if there is any way to research this, but do you think – that if the public were educated enough to question claims of accidental uh, harm to civilians, that is, to come to the, the understanding that, that launching a war uh, inevitably kills primarily civilians, uh, and, and no matter which incidents are called accidental, uh, a, a knowing choice was made to launch that war, uh, do you think that could eat into the, the support uh, for harm to civilians when it's Supposedly accidental?
1: Yeah, I don't know because I I would imagine if you ask most people, they'll say, well, yeah, in war, innocents are going to get killed, right? They acknowledge that that's inevitable. But I don't think, and this is my superficial reading, I haven't systematically documented this, but when I started working on this project, I started reading more of the mainstream news and about these incidents and paying attention to how they describe, quote, collateral damage, and there's very little uh, mention, at least that I encountered anecdotally, that these deaths are foreseeable. Like the, the military calculates the anticipated casualties in their their military operations and decides to go forward with milita- with bombings and other things every day, knowing with a high degree of um, probability that they're going to kill X number of civilians. But just from my casual reading of the press, I haven't seen that properly communicated. So I think if that was better understood, um, it may have an effect. I mean, I can only speculate, but I think it may.
0: So what else have you uh, researched and how do you... Propose we we make these findings useful to to peace activists or used by peace activists.
1: Well, I've also looked at in the context of my dissertation um, the source of moral concern. So I ran an experiment, and it's based on a real world scenario that's described in Paul Shar. He's a former Army Ranger in his recent book published in 2018. So his sniper team encountered the situation in Afghanistan in which they made a moral decision to be evacuated from the field rather than lawfully kill a young girl who was scouting for, who they believe was scouting for the Taliban. So I created a survey experiment where I have a scenario in which U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan are spotted by a scout and respondents in the study are told that if the soldiers do not kill the scout, he will alert the Taliban of their presence. The scenario then states that it would be legal under international law for the soldiers to kill the scout, even if doing so results in killing a young girl who is in the line of the soldier's shot. And then I varied the intent. So I had the, the young girl is is foreseeably and then, quote, accidentally killed. And I found that even though respondents the participants in the study were told that both were legal, that there still was a difference in their levels of support for killing the scout based on intent. And again, I think that shows to me that there are non-legal sources of moral concern. And I think this is relevant for peace and human rights activists, because so much of the discourse is legalistic. And I'm not sure that that type of rhetorical frame is most compelling to the broader public. Like I, I think appealing to people's sense of moral intuition um, or maybe religious faiths, right? That may be a, a more effective frame for peace activists to have.
0: I strongly suspect you're right. I don't know if there have been studies in, in terms of, of domestic issues of whether people really care much what's legal. I, I suspect very strongly on international issues, uh, people really do not care uh, and for the most part do not even know there are laws that are, that are relevant. Uh, and I, you know, when, when I'm told some particular murder in some particular war would be legal, uh, I always uh, wonder what made the entire war itself legal. Uh, because the, the the war on Afghanistan is in is in blatant violation uh, of the law itself in its entirety. Um, I, I don't I don't know uh, I don't know if that registers with with many people. I doubt it. But I think uh, I, I think moral questions rather than than legal questions uh, are are where people are are focusing their attention.
1: Well, and I agree. In international law. Has this distinction. So, I mean, my dissertation looks at international humanitarian law, which deals with the conduct of war. But the next step in my research as I move forward is to look at international criminal law. So, it looks at the reasons for going to war. So, you can get into things like crimes of aggression, right? So, that the whole enterprise, the reason for going is itself in violation of law. So, international law has these distinctions, and I'm not sure that those distinctions matter to the public. Um, But the good thing about a survey experimental study that I'm doing is that they are pretty ideal for trying to isolate the effect of some piece of information, right, on public attitudes.
0: Yeah. are, Are you familiar with a publication called Peace Science Digest? Yes, I am. Uh, I I find this very helpful in that Patrick Hiller and the others who put that together try to look at studies like the ones you're describing and and others and uh, and figure out lessons and key points uh, for for the general public and for peace activists to make use of. Um, do you do you find that helpful? Have you been in touch with them? Are you pursuing similar uh, objectives?
1: I haven't been in touch with them. I'm actually at the point in my own research on my dissertation where I'm starting to sort of poke my head out of the ground again. Because so much of it is developing the tools and then becoming familiar with the literature and then doing the data collection that I've just sort of been focusing on that. But now as I'm winding down with my program, I certainly want to make my research relevant. So like I said, people like yourself who are, who are doing the important work, um, you know, theoretical discussions are interesting, but I'm not satisfied with simply having something published, right? and it collects de- dust on a shelf. I want people who are actual political agents who are engaged politically to to take it and, and do something with it. And I do think in general that I agree with the journal you mentioned, the basic mission that, you know, peace activists, we can do a better job. We can learn, but we need high-quality evidence. So this is where I think researchers can step in and help provide, you know, that important service. Because it's, you know, it's difficult to learn if we don't have good evidence. difficult to learn from falsehood. falsehoods. falsehoods.
0: So if I so if I have thirty seconds or two minutes or five minutes on on CNN, uh, what what should I be saying about a typical war? Take your pick among them, or about the institution of war in general. That I'm that I'm not saying that I'm not likely to say. Uh, what what advice do you give people to make a stronger case? Well,
1: I would question, I would based on my findings, and again. You know, I should do my due diligence as a research, as a researcher. um, There are always limitations with every study, and I'm happy to go into the limitations of my study. But I do think there is enough evidence, not just based on my work, but also other survey work, that international law is not the most powerful um, motivator or influencer of public opinion. So, I would, probably, I would probably say try alternative frames. That's one. But in another study that I'm conducting actually with a, a co-author, her name is Sarah Maxey. She's a scholar at the Loyola University of Chicago. We actually went through and, and documented and started tracking some of the most commonly used critiques of war by anti-war uh, organizations like Answer, Code Peace, and Peace Action. And our project's just starting, but we do have some preliminary results. And what's interesting is that so far we're seeing that anti-war groups emphasize heavily that wars will inevitably cause harm to U.S. soldiers on the assumption that that will move the public against the war. We ran an experiment testing um, five different anti-war messages and we actually found that the harm to the soldiers was the least effective. And some of the more effective were effective were um, emphasizing, for example, the economic cost of war. So, based on our preliminary findings, um, it suggests that maybe emphasizing the economic cost, like basically we're wasting taxpayer dollars, you know, we could, instead of creating bombs and all of that, we could spend more
0: money on public education.
1: That seems to be pretty persuasive.
0: What what were the Uh, other ones, and was harm to civilians one of them?
1: Harm to civilians was one of them, and that seemed to be quite effective, though not the most. We also tested whether or not um, critiquing a war on the basis of effectiveness. In other words, it'll create more terrorists, for example. That was moderately effective, but um, the least effective was the the concern for soldiers critique, which is interesting. Now, I should say we also tested um, a treatment in our, in our experiment that combined the different critiques, and that one performed um, the best. And the idea there is, like, if you kind of throw spaghetti at the wall, you present multiple critiques that can appeal to different audiences. Right. So that seemed to work the best but I think it's important to emphasize that not all forms of public communications are amenable to that sort of spaghetti on the wall approach. The CNN interview that you mentioned, that would work, right? Because you have enough time, I think, to, to, hit, to highlight a few different critiques of war. But something like social media posting, uh, I don't know. I don't think, like, if you pass along an article, a lot of people just read the, the headline sort of move forward so in that context you'd have to pick what message do you really want to highlight right. so i mean based on our study and again it's one study we're going to we're going to conduct conduct follow-up studies but the economic emphasizing the economic cost of war um seem to be quite effective
0: but if i if i tweet and link to uh, the World Beyond War website where we make the case that this war endangers you, it uh, deprives you of, of all sorts of economic resources, it strips away your civil liberties, it harms the the natural environment, uh, it promotes racism and bigotry, the, the whole... Laundry list of of problems, including the the immorality, the harm to civilians, the economic damage, the damage to the to the troops themselves, the environmental damage, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, It's possible that that I thereby touch on an argument that reaches each person uh, most strongly, right?
1: I think so. I think the only concern, or the concern that comes to my mind about that approach, is how many people who visit the website will read through and then it raises a question of order right because you can imagine some people may read one or two and then sort of move on and that's not something that i can i can um like my research doesn't speak to that yet because we're focusing on the content of messages not the form in which messages are presented but I do think that that's something worthwhile to study, because unfortunately, it does seem like we live in a in a period where attention spans are right. waning. So we have to think about we have to look at the information that we put forth as, right. or at least we should look but at his attention as
0: but there's not a but there's not a single person on earth who won't give me that advice. What I think is is interesting and surprising about your advice is that people might care more about foreign civilians than about US troops because as you say the the thinking among activists is let's focus on that three or four percent of those harmed who are U.S. troops uh, at the expense of the, you know, the 95 percent of the victims who live where the war is happening, because that'll be a stronger, more strategic argument. That could be wrong. It could be wrong.
1: And our results suggest that it may. And I want to emphasize to just because we've conducted one study and anything, you know, it's important for us and we're going to conduct follow-up studies, and we'll have more to say later. But at this point, it it does seem that that could be the case. And it's at least, if nothing else, it's worth bearing in mind that our assumptions about what moves the public could obviously be wrong. So this is where I, I would also, um, I think activist organizations can try to do a better job of assessing themselves. You know, research doesn't have to be done by some academic. Organizations have an interest in trying to learn as well. And I don't know for sure, but I would venture to guess that organizations um, that you and I know of could do a better job of of learning as they go, experimenting as they go and learning.
0: Yes, indeed. Uh, we've got just a couple minutes left. What do you think of, uh, have you run into the argument at all that seems to me most popular within Washington, D.C.? Uh, and that is that this war or this proposed war would be unconstitutional because presidential rather than congressional. Uh, my, you know, drives me crazy because uh, the, the wars are all illegal, whether Congress authorizes them or not. Congress doesn't get to violate laws that, that presidents don't but but I, I suspect that much of the public doesn't care as much about who authorizes a war uh, as they do about whether there is a war, uh, and so if it's, a, if it's a means for Congress to prevent a war, great. But otherwise the this focus on let's make it a con- a constitutional congressional war seems a, a little uh off base to me. What do you think?
1: It could be, now. our results can't speak to that because we tested only five um, anti-war messages, but the one that you mentioned is on our bigger list because um, we're going through now and, and looking at anti-war organizations. We're going on their websites, looking all at their public statements, press releases, blogs, reports, action alerts, all of that, and documenting the frequency in which different critiques occur so the one that you mentioned is um, that essentially that the process for authorizing war was illegitimate is one that is, is emphasized, and we actually find that it's emphasized a lot uh, in our results. So that's something that we will test in the future, um, and then I'll be able to speak more to that now, but just generally, I, I think, again, you know, we have assumptions about what moves the public, and they could obviously be wrong. So I think it's easy as activists to take things for granted and just focus on the work that we're doing as opposed to taking a step back. I, I know I was, you know, I, I did that a lot when I was involved in the, in the peace movement before my um, uh, research project. Right. Um, so it's important to step back and just try to assess the evidence that we have as best we
0: can. I could not agree more. We will continue to try to do that Uh, with your help. We've been speaking with Stephen Roblin, who is a Ph.D. candidate in political science at Cornell University, uh, who is doing the sort of research we need. We will uh, put up links to to anything we can at talknationradio.org. Stephen Roblin, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.